welcome to my classroom. Welcome to our classroom, and welcome back to Don't Make Us Use Our Teacher Voice with Alex and Sam. And we're Sam and Alex. It's me, Alex, and that's Sam. And that's us. Um, welcome back for episode two. If you listen to episode one, thanks. We love you. We appreciate your support. If you're here for episode two, we love you even more. Um, if this is your first episode, hi, there is another one. It is existent. Find it. Listen to it. Download it. Love us. Follow us on social media. Learn all about how we feel about movie teachers. <laughs> Learn how we feel about pop culture teachers, yes. So to start today off, we are going to get a little bit more into current events, although I don't know how current current this is, and like what's going on in our real world as opposed to the fictional world. Chicago teacher strike made news at the end of 2019 and kind of continued on into the beginning of this year when they started posting TikToks and YouTubes of their interpretive dancing of what it felt like to them to be forced to go back to teaching in the classroom during a pandemic. So here's my thing. I love an interpretive dance. And I love that they like can express themselves during that. And I am the first person that will start to dance. But I am just here to say that, one, we should have not gone back to school when we were in the middle of this huge crisis. So here's that. And I know that every other teacher in the world is like, yes, Alex, I know, I agree. I've only been saying this for a year now. <clears throat> and I am, I personally am hating on all the people that are hating on these people. But on the flip side of that, you have to be aware of who your audience is, my friends. I don't think this was a well-timed situation. Display? Yes. And let me just tell you, I'll be dancing with you, and I love it. So I'm on the opposite side. I think that they made a mockery of teachers, and they made us look absolutely asinine. More I like think if it was another time frame, it would have been more accepted. I just feel like we look like children and toddlers that are pitching a fit instead of respectable professionals who want to be taken seriously and want to be making and close the wage gap to earn what we're supposed to be earning and to be heard about our concerns about our safety of ourselves and our children and instead we're out here making interpretive dances. And I, while I respect the artistry, I just feel like it might have gone a little bit left. And then, you know, as teachers that Alex and I did have to go back to full-time face-to-face slash hybrid teaching in August. So we have been in the classroom since the beginning of the school year here in Florida. And we didn't get a choice. There wasn't, it was you go back and you follow what's going to happen or you don't have a job. The worst part of the whole thing was they asked us and tried to make it sound like we had a voice. That's true. They did. There was a survey sent out repeatedly about whether or not we felt careful enough or comfortable enough or safe enough to teach in a traditional environment face-to-face with students. And every single person that I know said no. Resoundingly said no. And yet, here we are. People are posting on Facebook left and right. They're like, wait a second. Where are they coming up with this 75% number or this 70% number? Because every single person that I know said we didn't want to go back. Uh, Back to the interpretive dance thing, though. I think it's important for us to remember that these are dancers. These are not... Me and Sam, who were at one point in time dancers, these are not math teachers. This is like what they do. I'll die on the snow. I, I, I got Charles back. Maybe this was not the right time, but I'll dance with you. You'll dance with them. They, um, so there was a lot of reactions to the public school strike, teachers union strike. Um, they made a lot of news. It went on from like end of 2019, like I said, 
And it was directly only supposed to go until like the end of October, but then they kind of continued on with the teachers union after Miami filed suit about not wanting to be back in the classroom, though that didn't really work out for them either. Because no one wanted to go back. No one wanted to go back. Everyone thought it was a bad idea. Here we are, one year later, still in the pandemic. We just got an email, maybe two days ago, about how someone on our campus had COVID. Wah, wah, wah. Here we are. Did you like my song? I did. So on the same note, and I know that it wasn't on our on our schedule today, but it, it did pop into my little ADHD head. COVID vaccines. I know that you are on board. You have yours. Hit it. Hit it. Hit it. Hit it. I am actually it, not eligible for the vaccine because yeah. of some previous uh, health issues. Uh, I have to wait for more information to go see. And I'm not really 100% sure where I fall on this. I know everyone's like, I care what goes into my body or I don't care what goes into my body. Look at how I eat. I fall somewhere <laughs> in between those yeah. two things. But, like, a little about me. I was a guinea pig back when Gardasil first came out. This was to protect you from the one form of HPV that causes ovarian cancer. My mom. Cervical cancer. Right. Whatever. It doesn't run in my family. No woman in my family has ever had cervical cancer. It's not a risk. I am not at risk for them. And my mom was on it. You are getting this shot. It was fresh out the gate with the FDA stamp on it. And turns out it caused all kinds of issues with like pulmonary systems and heart problems and all this other stuff. And did I walk away without any of those issues? Yes, 100%. However. Did you walk away with the biggest bruise that you've ever gotten in your life? 100%. Because that's all I remember. 100%. Um, so I do have some not great experiences with being first in line for a vaccine. My other issue is that we did rush it through. It hasn't gone through all the FDA approval processes. And while I don't believe they're intentionally trying to harm anyone, I don't love that we're like just injecting Do things. It. <laughs> just injecting things. But to each their own, right? Like there's people that pick and poke tattoos still. And they think that's a thing. Um, Sam, I don't know if you know this, but there were two girls at our school that we formerly taught at together that were cousins. Um, and they both have pick and poke tattoos. And then they both got infected. And they're like, what do I do? And I was like... You don't give yourselves big and poke tattoos, my dudes. The joys of teaching, the things you find out. That's like the uh, we're gonna we're gonna segue into to discussions about fights and bodily fluids, which sounds grosser than it actually is. I promise, kinda. But some horror stories from our from our educational days that we might find humorous in in hindsight. They weren't funny at the time. I wanna I wanna preface this and disclaimer this by saying. No, I didn't sit there and laugh at these situations while they were occurring. I took them very seriously. I did not laugh at a child's face. In hindsight, however, the ridiculousness of the event and the way that it played out is on the dark side of humor, comical uh, at the very least, if not hysterical. But I do remember the first time I ever got told that one of my students' favorite beverages was Clorox on the rocks. Ew, what? And I had to double take. Was that your last school? <laughs> it wasn't my last Ugh. school. <laughs> and they had a very in-depth conversation about how it has to be Clorox. You can't just drink the generic bleach. It's got to be Clorox on the rocks. And so I was the atrocity that this is even occurring. I asked, you know, the simple question would be to where are your parents? Like, who is watching you while you're deciding to, to do shots of bleach? But then you have to remember that not everybody has the ability to have two-parent households. Not everybody has a parent that's in the home all the time. Some people have to work. Kids sometimes have to be left to their own devices. And unfortunately, parents in Gen X, Gen Z, and Boomers assume, Millennials and Boomers, sorry, I misspoke, assume that kids are smart enough not to consume something that smells like battery acid. But clearly, we are overestimating. They're not. They're not. 
Tide pods. Here's the thing. I have learned, because my little brother is much younger than I am, and I feel like his other parent, if you are not explicit in saying something, it's like they don't even hear it. So here I am explicitly telling you, if you want to go grab your kids right now, you do not drink bleach. Do not. It's not good for you, no matter what some previous political leaders might have joked, encouraged about. I forgot about that. It's not good for you. Don't do it for the gram. Don't do it for the TikTok. Don't do it for the TikTok. Don't. Don't do it. Why did they know what it means to, for something to be on the rocks? Because I was like 24 years old before I knew what that meant. I think it's more common in um, colloquial conversations now with their music and the TV shows they're watching. Now go watch Rugrats. I feel like the TV shows we grew up watching as coming of age, for me it was like Clarissa Explains It All yeah. and Sabrina the Teenage Witch and um, Boy Meets World where the depiction of consumption of alcohol really wasn't present. Yeah. Even in Dawson's Creek until they went to college – there really wasn't a lot of consumption of alcohol. And even then, it was very um, surface level, like doing shots or whatever, but not shots of anything. Nobody knew what they were consuming. Right. Or having a beer or a keg at a party. But it was very on the rocks because we're both fancy. Right, it wasn't any of those things. But something I started doing a lot of years ago, because again, my younger sibling is also a lot younger than I am, was watching TV shows that were relevant to the generation below me. Um, so I still, my husband hates it. He calls it my trash TV days. Um, Friday and Saturday, Friday night, Saturday morning are my trash TV days. That's when I catch up on all my garbage TV Wait, that I watch. Erin and I are the same age. <laughs> yeah. Oh. My sister and Alex are actually the same age. I am older than them by about five years, um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're talking about pop culture references, it is. <laughs> so I still watch things like All American and Riverview, Riverdale. Oh, um, Riverdale. Oh. Legacies. I watch the new revamp of Charmed. I watch uh, Good Trouble and The Fosters. Listen, and it's because those are good shows. All of those, right? And so those have started taking on much more adult topics yeah. at a significantly earlier target than anything we would have been exposed to. And it, and we're hyper, you know, I don't want to say hypersexualizing, but that also is occurring. But like we're forcing these kids to take on mature content significantly earlier than they should. Yeah, I think. I think sometimes it is very well-intentioned, and I think it is good to be having these conversations, um, but you have to decide, like, when is too young? And that really comes down to, like, what are you letting your kids watch on TV? So I remember watching The Fosters um, a couple of seasons in, probably three or four seasons in, when they when Callie first meets, oh, God, his name's not going to cry, Alex, maybe? I don't even know if it's Alex. Good name. And he's trans. Uh-huh. Um, female to male. And it causes all kinds of, and not that I don't believe that there should be representation. That's not what I'm saying. Um, Or that I believe that that topic shouldn't be discussed. I 100% do. But on a network targeting 12 to 18 year olds, is that the arena where we're discussing relationships in the context of relationships of having a feelings or attraction to a trans person? Does that change your sexuality? Does that mean you're something other than what you are? Does that mean that you have to reevaluate your everything you've ever known in your life? I also think that audience is just so broad. You think about like this year I'm teaching sixth grade, but last year I taught seniors, and the stuff I would say, show, talk about with the seniors would never even cross my mind at all to talk no. about with the sixth graders, and that is really the whole audience. We discussed a little bit 
in my class, yes, not yesterday, the day before. There's a, I have deaf, hard of hearing students in that class and my interpreter has a student who's trying to become an interpreter following her, like shadowing. Oh, and she's super sweet, super smart, she's great. And we got on the topic and we were talking about the cabinet and we were talking about each of the departments inside of the cabinet and explaining what they do. I thought you were talking about the cabinet where your books are in your classroom. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about, dude? No. And so we got to the part about the Department of the Interior and what I've been having the students do was look at the image or the emblem for each of the departments oh, and explain what they think it does before I tell them. Mm -hmm. And so the Department of the Interior, in case you don't know, has a big picture of a buffalo in the middle of it. Everybody has a water buffalo. Water buffalo. <laughs> and the kids weren't really, like, they knew it was a bison or a buffalo. Uh, I had one kid call it an ox. Did they and, know what a bison was? An Oregon they? Trail. Did they? Oregon Trail. I have one student that did. But that's because when he created his own country, he has it protected by bisons because bisons are scary. In that's his opinion. Sick. So they were like, it's a buffalo, it's a buffalo, it's a buffalo. And I was like, yep. So, and we went on to talk about it was a conservation agency and kind of kept it very top level. Yeah. Interpreter Shadow said something about how she was still in school. And the kids were like, what? You're still in school? What? 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 And she goes, yeah, I'm sitting in my history class right now. And we're talking about a lot of the same things you guys are learning about right now in my history class. She goes, what? Well, shouldn't you, aren't you behind then? Why shouldn't you have learned it already if I'm doing it now? And we went on to explain to them that history, especially when it's taught in the public school system, in elementary school, you get a very cursory broad view. Yeah. And then middle school, you might get a little bit deeper, but not much, like still pretty surface level because of the context of what those kids can process at that time, mm -hmm. right? And then you get into high school where you start to deal with a little bit deeper, start to touch on the controversial topics, start to get into that. And then college is where you dig deep, right? And so... How much can you hate your professor today? How much can you hate the world today? <laughs> and so we started talking about this and they were like, well, so give me an example. And I was like, okay, so you learn about Native Americans and the colonists in elementary school, right? They're like, yeah, Thanksgiving. I'm like, perfect. Boom. Boom. That's your surface. Corn. Corn. Horses. <laughs> Thanks, right? I said, when you get to middle school American history, you'll learn a little bit more about, like, syphilis and smallpox and diseases that they weren't prepared for and how we inherently, and I say we as Americans, not we as in, like, me and my family in particular, but how American colonizers, like, shared all of these diseases with people that didn't have immunities and ended up causing massive widespread death. I have to say, we've talked about that a lot, especially with the virus. Mm -hmm. And so, again, we're not digging super, super no. deep into the atrocities, but we're staying right at that surface level. And then when you get to high school, you start talking about the Trail of Tears and, and all of the westward momentum and, and what that kind of looked like. But it's not until college that they tell you how systemically horrendous we were. And so I ended up explaining, probably too early, disclaimer, that colonizers moving west systematically murdered and slaughtered thousands and thousands and thousands of buffalo just to burn them so that they could starve the Native Americans off their land. And the kids' jaws dropped. And they were like, that's awful. I know. 100%. You're right. It is. That's atrocious. But that's why when we tell you that you have to keep relearning the same thing, air quotes intended, it's because you're just taking layers upon, like, onions have layers. Like, like ogres, right? You got to keep peeling them back and getting a little deeper. So, I don't know. So, I feel I feel weird about the TV shows that these kids are watching because it's exposing them to, like, I mean, I find it entertaining, but I'm also in my 30s. <laughs> so, I'm like, yes, that is a lot about how your 20s look. That is a pretty accurate depiction of what it's like to be lost and confused in your 20s. 100%. Yeah. I guess, um, 
I think it's also hard for parents, I do not have children, let's say it 12 more times. Uh, I think it's also hard for parents to know what they're getting into because they haven't seen it either. Back to where we were headed. I think we should limit, we both had a lot of experiences with some atrocious, like, horrible things happening on campus that were like, oh God, whether they were fights, whether they were medical issues, whether they were bodily fluids here or there or whatnot. Top three? Should we go with the top three most memorable for each? Yeah, hit it, go. Okay. Um, I think my first one is definitely going to be the last true fight I saw at my last school between two pregnant teenagers, both about 14 or 15, who shared the same baby daddy. Yeah. And there had been tension brewing here, and we've been working on them say. with their counselors, and they'd been talking it through. And I guess something had occurred outside of school over the weekend, and this was like a Monday or a Tuesday, and both girls were back, and we were in the lunchroom. And one girl, and I mean, when I say pregnant, guys, I don't mean like little baby pooch. I mean like we're talking six, seven, eight months pregnant. These, they're, they're smuggling watermelons at this point, okay? And I actually at the same time was also pregnant. So I, I was not of any assistance during this period of time, so I had to genuinely just sit back and watch everything that occurred. And one girl walked from one side of the, of the lunchroom very casually with her tray going to throw it in the trash. And what we didn't see is that she didn't throw all of her trash away. She opens up this little white container, pint-sized container, and dumps lukewarm chili over the top of the other girl's head, just like out of a movie. <laughs> and I just sat back and watched this girl's face go, uh, and she pushes her chair back slams into the girl behind her because the chairs are very close together, stands up, and they start, they just lock on, and they are just wailing on each other. And unfortunately, the school that I worked at did not have a resource officer. Um, so we are legally... And it was all women teachers. We did have men teachers at that okay. point. Okay. Um, but unfortunately, we're not allowed to intervene. It's in our contracts. We're not allowed to insert ourselves physically into a physical confrontation with students. We're not allowed to put our hands on. And for those of you listening, if you're of an older generation, you that's baffling to you. And I 100% agree because I definitely for sure remember teachers snagging people by the arm to get them to, to leave a situation in a fight. That is not a thing anymore, apparently. So we just have to kind of like watch and try to talk them down from across the room while we evacuated the rest of the, of the cafeteria. Both girls ended up going to the hospital. Both girls ended up being admitted for observation for like overnight and then they went home unfortunately that is the easiest and only way to get kicked out of the school that we did work at so they were not welcome back to the facility and i remember it being very stressful on all the other girls involved but the surreal nature of watching two third trimester pregnant teenagers like one on top of the other just wailing on each other it's so beyond anything i ever imagined dealing with as a teacher <laughs> I don't even have any concepts. I wish that you guys could see my face right now because just, <laughs> yes, absolutely nothing. I don't, I don't, I did not even have, when Sam and I worked at the school together, I did not even have a teaching degree. I had a degree in psych and legal studies and nothing could have prepared me for this stuff. No. I also, a full disclosure, I also did not have a teaching degree. Um, mine was in psych and social, and I was working on my master's degree in political science when I started teaching. Um, so these were not things that I was like, yeah, I'm going to go teach some reading. Let's go teach some kids how to be literate. This is going to be great. And then actually I got into teaching history and social sciences, but I, th none of this, none, 
the, the, the bleach or the, the pregnant fight, none of that were things that I was prepared to handle or that college prepares you to deal with. No. I have to be very honest. I We talked about this before we started recording, but I thought we were talking about bodily fluids for just a second. And so the story that I prepared in my mind was about pulling a tooth. So I'll just come back to that later. <laughs> oh, no. I have one of those too. So please share. We can go back and forth. That's actually number two on my list. <laughs> As the most horrifying to me, but that's for other reasons. I would like to discuss a fight that happened the other day in the cafeteria in which I, I normally, I do not mind to break up a fight. It does not scare me. Mm. Um, I have a little brother that is much bigger than I am, and I was a cheerleader. Like, I have a black belt. Like, I am not afraid. But in this moment, I don't think I was afraid, but I was dumbfounded. Let me set the scene for you. In our cafeteria, we have... Two rows of booths that are like nailed down to the floor and they just go there. It's kind of cute. I kind of like them. It almost makes it look like a Roman arena. It does look a little gladiator-esque. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's this one kid. He runs in. Full Naruto run. Full Naruto run. Love it. Um, and if you don't know what that is. Please Google it. Please stop right now and Google it. So full Naruto run. He throws down his backpack. I almost thought, (laughs) this is so dumb of me, but this is just like so my (laughs) wholesome little brain. I thought he was going to dance, like have a a moment because I've never encountered this kid before. (laughs) And I was like, okay, like what's happening? But then he like takes off his backpack and then he takes off his sweatshirt and he starts to take off his shirt. He does not take off the shirt all the way, thank God. And he's just like sidestepping all around. But this is what I really thought he was going to dance. And I was just like, what in the heck is happening right now this is not real life am I gonna get a show and I'm standing there with my class and I have a very very small gifted class on this day during lunch and my class is just standing there also being very confused (laughs) also probably thinking that a dance is about to happen and then dance battle (laughs) seriously and here's all of us just wholesome little beans just staring like thinking what the heck what the heck um, and then this other kid comes in, and I recognize him, um, and I recognize him having some, I recognize him because I teach him, uh, and the first thing that goes to my mind is he has a pretty heavy IEP, and I think, oh no, oh no, 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 oh no, 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 I know what's happening now, it's not a dance, it's not a dance, we're having a fight, <laughs> and so I immediately am like, Siri, call, call assistant principal, call assistant principal, and Obviously, Siri is like, I didn't hear what you said. What was that? And I was like, Siri, you are no good to me. I hate your guts so much. You ever notice she just eavesdrops on conversations you don't need her to hear, but if you actually address her directly, she can't hear you? Yes, funny. <laughs> Siri, I really needed you, and you did not have my back, girl. So I guess this really wasn't a fight. It was an almost fight, but me and some other teachers broke it up. Um, There's a teacher on my hallway who is just like, she is bad to the bone. She is. She rocks. And she was just like, swoop, 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 let me get to you. And then she's like, you don't need this in your life. And our friend that I teach was like, you're right, I don't. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We love emotional maturity. That's our favorite. (laughs) And then the other kid grabbed his stuff and Naruto ran right back somewhere else and then where he was intercepted by a resource officer. (laughs) Because we have those here. We have those here. It's so nice to have those here. So to, to, to segue to our second story, I don't like teeth. And I need to say this in a way that makes me sound less crazy, but I'm not really sure it will. I have, I am OCD diagnosed. I do have some things that I just cannot handle. And one of those is that I am not okay with teeth. 
chipping teeth, wiggly teeth, losing teeth, cap, anything to do with your teeth. Like my biggest nightmare as a child that I would wake up sweating and screaming is a, is a, I was running outside my parents' house on the sidewalk, tripped and fell and busted my teeth out. Or as an adult, like I will have a, a dream where I'm like moving my tongue along the inside of my teeth and I find like a wiggle spot and like my molars fall out and I wake up in a sweat. Like I don't like teeth. I'm at this school actually this year. I was sitting in the middle of my lesson. Mine and is also this year. All of a sudden I have a student who I absolutely love this kid. He's so funny. His mom is just as funny. They definitely take after one another. Um, he pops his hand over his mouth real fast and he goes, mm-hmm. I need to go to the north. I need to go to the north. And I was like, why? Like you what happened? In. What happened? And this kid is a kid that tries to get out of class and go places pretty frequently. So I'm like, what happened? Like what's going on? And he's like, and then the kid sitting behind him goes, he just lost a tooth. He just pulled part of his tooth out. And I'm like, oh, Ooh. Gotta go. you just what? You just, you just what? He's like, I don't know. It just fell out. I'm like, what just, what, what just fell out? He goes, my tooth. He goes, you got some string? No, sir. What do you need string for? What do you think you're going to add string into? He goes, well, I just need to pull the bottom part of it out. I said, you're telling me that only half of your tooth fell out? Sir, go to the nurse. Go to the nurse. You know what the nurse did? Sent him back. Did nothing. Didn't even call his mama. I was like, "Mm -mm, call your mama on my phone right now. Right now, we are calling your mama. Your teeth shouldn't fall right out of your head. This is not okay. I'm not okay. And I spent the rest of my day in like five alarm anxiety and cringiness because teeth are not supposed to just be falling out of your face in seventh grade. <coughs> no. That should happen way earlier in life. I'm skewed because I started losing teeth before kindergarten and I had all of my adult teeth well before middle school. Sam, did you know I have not lost all my baby teeth yet? That is fascinating. I mean, I thought I wanted to maybe at this point. Don't they, don't they pull them? I thought they pulled them if they didn't. That's me chomping with my... Her little teethers. My little teethers. Her little teethers. So what is your teether story? Uh, so, also, a, a darling child that I really love, he is much smaller than, he's much smaller than his classmates, which is important in the story. He's a little nug. He's an annoying little nug, but I do love him very much, as they usually are. He came to me and said, Miss Ryan, I have a problem. And I said, oh no, this could only mean so many things. <laughs> and he's like, I think my tooth is loose, and I'm very worried, and I'm very stressed. And I was like, oh. Thank God that's what it is. And I was like, well, I can pull it for you. I, I taught third grade for a little while, and I can... I'm sorry, I'm just horrified by the statement that you just made. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I can pull it for you. Yeah. <laughs> Heavy breathing. Listen, I've had the coronavirus, and I'm vaccinated. It's not even what I'm worried about. It's the touching of the tooth. When my son starts to lose teeth, I'm going to send him to Aunt Alex or his daddy, because guess who's not doing it? Listen... to his little tufuses. His little tufuses. Well, he was very stressed, and I asked him, I was like, well, you know, I, I used to do this at my other school. I can help you. And he's like, no, I don't. And I was like, okay, well, if you need me, like, I'm right here. And that is very much me and this friend's relationship. If you need me, I'm right here. He does need me, I, and I am always right there. He sits very close to me. And so probably 30 minutes go by, and we're on a block schedule, so, like, no time at all is actually gone by. <laughs> and he comes back and says, Ryan, I really need you. I'm very stressed. And I said, 
okay, like I can just pull it out real quick, no problem. And he, I knew from something prior that he's very <laughs> afraid of blood. We had another minor incident. It was like a scab and again, whatever, it didn't bother me, but he was like, there's blood! And I was like, that's your blood, my homie. It's, it's not a big deal. It's gonna be okay. We're gonna get you a Band-Aid. We're gonna get this cleaned up, whatever. So anyways, I knew that he was afraid of blood, so I grabbed a tissue. <laughs> I wish you guys could see Sam's face. I grabbed a tissue and he's like, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. And my, my hand is literally in this child's I'm mouth. also stressed, I'm also stressed. <laughs> my hand is in this child's mouth and he's telling me that he's stressed. My palms are sweating. <laughs> I'm <laughs> uncomfortable. It, it took place right next to the desk you're sitting I'm so too. uncomfortable. <laughs> so I am just holding it. He's like, you stress. And I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to wait here for a second. And he was like, oh, if that's what you wanted to do. And I was like, it is. And then he turns his own head, yanks it out, comes back. And then he's like, wait, Miss Ryan, my tooth, it's not there anymore. Okay. So tooth in my hand, he turns his head, tooth is so out. He looks at it and he's like, Oh my god, that's my tooth. And I was like, yeah, it is. There was no blood, there was no nothing. This tooth is just in my hand. I didn't even have to move my hand. This fool moved his whole head for me. And, <laughs> and I was like, do you want me to put it in your envelope? And he's like, can you make it a bag? And I was like, can I make it a bag? So I made it a bag. <laughs> I made it a bag and I put it in his backpack for him. Wow, That's my sixth grade tooth story. So my last story is kind of a kind of it's not like a horror horror story it just shows like kids suck a little bit yeah. but it's also so wholesome and sweet it's also this happened like this week so i want to just share this so one of our remote students has just come back mm -hmm. and he's not in my class per se he's in the other civics teachers class his room is across the hall and he is the epitome of those genuinely sweet baby innocent doe-eyed middle schoolers the ones we all signed up because that's who we thought we were working with yeah. and then we got what we got and so he was in our classroom because myself and a couple of other teachers end up when we have a lack of substitutes we have what we call split classes and the kids that don't have a teacher that period come back to their homeroom so we combine homeroom so that there's more eyes on the amount of children that are there so we can still get some stuff done as far as planning goes so the three of us combine so we have probably 15 20 kids in front of us and you have the outliers, the kids that don't like to, to deal with anybody else. They're doing their own thing, playing their video games, study hauling it up, whatever. We have one kid in the front who's just a little bit of an oddball. Love him to death, but he's like laying face down on the floor without his shoes on. And you know what? Fine. Do it. <laughs> and then you have like this big cluster of the kids in the back that are talking and they're loud and they're whatever. And then our new sweet baby is on the perimeter of this little circle. I don't know. I couldn't see. So I don't know if this girl, we will call her, I need a girl name. Olivia. We're going to call her Olivia. Olivia and Brad. Brad is what we're going to call him. I feel like Brad is too aggressive a name for our kid, but we're going to go with it. Olivia <laughs> brushed Brad's shoulder accidentally, like flipping her hair or something. No. Like came into physical contact with him in some way, shape, or form. And he blushed. Okay? He blushed, which is so pure to begin with. And he blushed. But all the other kids in the back notice. So they immediately start picking on him. Because one, he walks a little odd. He's kind of tall and lanky, so he's got a weird gait. He's really smart, probably on the spectrum somewhere, not really like super social or understanding social cues and whatever. So they start, you know, picking on him, riding on him for black that he's blushing and whatever else. And so he ends up coming to the front of the classroom to ask the three of us teachers. He's like, he's like, what's it mean when you blush? Like, what is that? And so 
I try to be as objective as possible when they Science. ask me about bodies. So I was like, okay, well, it's an evolutionary thing where physiologically, you know, your face gets hot, okay, because it's a response to stimulus where blood rushes to the surface of your skin, causing a flush, okay, mm-hmm. either because of certain emotions or because of physical exertion. So either you're working out outside or you're exercising so much or your temperature, body temperature is hot, you flush, or sometimes it happens with embarrassment or, you know, uh, excitement. You know, you can oh, get those things. Sale. And that's where I went with it. And I left. He goes, oh, okay. And then he walked away. He came back to homeroom the next morning and told his homeroom teacher, who was one of the panelists, that he went home and looked it up. And he said that it said it was a romantical response to stimulation. And he says, I have my first crush. This girl that was bullying him the day before, this boy has decided is the love of his life and it doesn't end there. He writes her a love note. Oh no. Who she then shows to the homeroom teacher because they share the same homeroom. And it goes on to talk about how her hair is like the clouds and her smile is like the sunrise and how beautiful she is. And it is the most vomit-inducing, sugar-sweet thing you have ever heard in your life. And he has no concept of the fact that this girl doesn't even consider him to be a bug on her windshield. And he is just so sweet. What? Does Lee write you poems? Absolutely not. (laughs) 100%. Uh, no, my husband is not a poem writer. Although he claims to have been a songwriter at some point in his life span. Um, he is full of it. I can neither confirm nor deny I've never seen the paper handwriting. I honestly think that if somebody ever tried to read something he wrote, they would die because he writes worse than any nine-year-old I've ever seen in my life. So, But that was my purity sweet. But it, they, uh, it all comes out of bullying. Like, they were literally being mean, but he has no concept of the fact that they're being mean because he misses the social cues. Yeah. So he thought he was inside the circle and mistook her putting on a jacket or something, like some innocent touch, as a flush of stimulation, and he now has his first crush. And it's just TBD on how this continues to break down. But the wholesomeness is what you need in your life today. So after my pregnancy story, I needed to share that one. That's very sweet. I'm going to end this by, this is my biggest teacher horror story ever. Dim the lights. Let's go. My very first day ever of teaching. Ever. A child walks up to me, opens his mouth to say something, and then sneezes on me. Full on. And I was just like, I'm going to (laughs) die! And here I am five years later. Yes, we're here. We've survived. And now's my alarm. For lunch. For lunch. So our last segment that we wanted to kind of touch on is something that's also been up in current events and, and on the news. And I've actually had time, like we've said in the last episode, Alex has studies and things outside. She has a second job. She has, you know, her educational studies to better herself as a human and an educator. And I'm almost done. Almost there. That's a um, now, but still, it's pretty close. Eh, you know, whatever, it's fine. So I had a little bit more time to do some some digging. So some of the facts and figures are, are going to be things that I'm sharing with her and getting her genuine reaction about. We want to talk about what's going on on the West Coast about is math racist? And I want to be completely transparent in this statement, stating that I'm from South Florida. I'm from a big city. I, you know... My parents used to joke and call me the multicultural dater. I was equal opportunity, which makes me sound really horrible. But it just meant that, like, I, you know, I dated guys that were Italian. I dated guys that were Palestinian, that were black, Hispanic. I never dated an Asian guy that I knew of, but, like, you know, whatever. But South Florida, you know? South Florida. Like, it is what it is. 
my older brothers are half Cuban. Some of my best friends in the world are from significantly different cultures than myself. My goddaughter is half Haitian, half Ugandan. I span the gambit. I don't care where you're from as long as you're a good human. I'm about you. I'm about that life. About that being life. said, I find this, I'm the first one to tell you I hate mathematics. I hate mathematics. If I actually chose my fields in college based upon how little mathematics I would actually have to take to graduate, that's how I ended up taking sociology and psych. That is how I ended up there because I didn't want to take a lot of math. So I guess it starts in Seattle is where this, this conversation starts to discuss. And, and from what I've pulled, the Chicago Tribune says that the, the school district was requiring to add in mandatory ethnic studies frameworks for all subjects across the board. And this might look at something like discussing how other cultures may have used the subject differently, subject being mathematics, like talking about how the Aztecs had a base 10 number system instead of our base 20 system backwards. We have a base 10, they have a base 20. Yes. Teachers are a very unique group of people and sometimes we really just like to throw ourselves against the classroom doors of other teachers because there's windows there and it's funny. So, so that's what you heard in the background. He was coming for a cup of coffee. Aw, the coffees. Yes. We need bean juice. Go, go juice. I'm the, I'm the Keurig girl in this whole life. No, she's the Keurig girl. I just have a, I just, I'm the tea girl. So I guess that makes me like the hippie of my hall. <laughs> yes. I have 18 different types of herbal teas if you need one, I got one. So the Chicago Tribune talks about that, and and in all in all, that sounds great, right? The 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 lens or the framework would be a lot like if you put your kid in a private school or a, you know a parochial school where you would look at all subjects through the lens of that religion or that faith. No big deal, right? All about cultural inclusion. But then it like goes a little deeper, and the Daily Advent talks about a direct quote that says that the goal is to identify and challenge the ways that math is used to uphold capitalist, imperialist, and racist views and that it becomes advertised as a, quote, pathway to math equity microcourse, espousing that, quote, ethno-mathematics would begin, quote, dismantling racism in mathematics because mathematics reflects, quote, white supremacy culture. I would like to stop you right there. First of all, if we are trying to make math about something for everyone, which I think is the, really, like, the heart of this, so, like, okay, okay, I'm all about everything for everyone. But if we're trying to make this a program that's for everyone, why on God's green earth are we using words that most adults don't even understand? Fair. Do Fair. Know. Considering, and here's a, here's a tidbit for you guys in case you were curious. Uh, here in the South, I guess Florida doesn't count in the South, but technically the part of Florida we live in isn't really Florida. But in the state of Florida, one in four adults is illiterate. Yes. And one in three is functionally illiterate. So they can read enough to survive, but outside of that, they can't read contracts, can't read licensing agreements or agreements for anything. They're the people that scroll to the bottom of contract, sign it, and walk away. It, it, it continues to state that ethnomathematics would reverse or overcome the, quote, unequivocally false belief that mathematics is purely objective and counters the, quote, idea that there are always right and wrong answers which perpetuates objectivity. Well, here's the thing. In math, you either are wrong or you are right. If I am measuring something to make a table, I cannot be off. I can't do whatever I feel like or else, or eyeball it, which I try to do all the time, because that doesn't work, because there is a formula, there are numbers, they are concrete, this is real. 
I don't just get to feel that my table like go the same length. I so personally, I feel like math. I, what I was always told growing up, and my my dad was a big proponent of this because I hated math, but my father's actually really great at math. He's that guy that does all the calculations in his head for no reason and spits out a number, even though he only has a high school diploma and barely that. Um, he says that math is the great equalizer. Yes. Because no matter what language you speak, math is math. Math is always math. Two plus two is always four, regardless of what culture you come from. Yeah. I, I thought that being objective was the goal, that we're seeing the whole instead of someone's version or image or piece of. Yeah. So then it continues on again, and it says that it will counter the idea that there are always right and wrong answers, which perpetuates objectivity, like we said. And alleged evidence includes the, quote, the focus on getting the right answer and that students are required to show their work. Yes, you are required to get the right answer. Yes, you are required to show your work. Right. The answer is yes, you do that. Um, the implication is that the new view would look at a mathematics in a way that we would disregard all previous civilizations and concrete contributions to the field. And this is an opinion piece written by a, a PhD in economics out on the West Coast. I look directly for a West Coastie because obviously that, and that, that sounds really rude, but let's be real, guys. Florida aside, the South has one viewpoint of the rest of the world. The left coast has a very distinct view of the world. And the upper east coast has a very distinct view of the world. Everyone in the middle kind of falls somewhere in between. Yeah. Um, Florida, chaos knows no sides. To quote TikTok. Florida man. Florida man is out. Yeah. Florida has no concept of what anybody's side is. They don't care. Floridians are all over the map. And depending on which door or Walmart you walk into that day is who you're going to face. But the idea of, the, of that author's section was that if we teach in this manner, we're disregarding the fact that mathematics is actually stemmed from the contributions of many different cultures between the Aztecs and the Chinese and the Mesopotamians and the Babylonians and, and, and all of the things that they developed, equations and ways to count and calculate and do stuff. I'm not... Remember when we said we had math friends? This is when we would actually use them. Mm -hmm. I do not, don't know a lot about math. I passed math. Does that count? I know enough math. SPSS is my friend. Yes, SPSS is a friend. And another author goes on, or the same author goes on to say that it leads to a higher decline in academic excellence for minorities or biopic people, okay, because they have them not focus on getting the right answer, which links them to the concept, or linking the concept and decline in achievement to this idea of a guilty America, back to a civil rights era of handouts and working. Their research inside of it, it's on Clarion News, the author goes into to link a bunch of studies and, and information about when they started integrating colleges or high schools, people of color weren't, weren't deemed wanted in these spaces. So being there wasn't supposed to be a handout. Being there was, it's time to shine. It's time to show that you should have been there all along, that you deserve to be there. And it's time to just to be you, be smart, be, be the educated rock star of a human being you always have been and now people have to see you right so she says or he i think it's he sorry um says that taking away the right answer taking away a way to be successful and to prove that you have the same ability to calculate or to understand a concept as your melanin lacking peers makes you less successful academically because you can't get the right answer so now we have to validate your wrong answer because to me my interpretation of this statement is you aren't capable of getting the right answer, so I have to recognize your wrong answer and validate your feelings about how you got to the wrong answer because telling you it's the wrong answer and not letting you find the right answer 
is degrading to your cultural background. Okay, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I can validate your feelings all day long because I can be in the trenches with you. I can empathize and I can sympathize and I know what it's like to be that kid. I also know what it's like to be bad at math. Like, I, I also suck at math. No, what it's like to be bad at math. There were lots of days and nights that I sat at the kitchen table crying. Like, Sobbing. Like the world was ending over a math problem that really is not a big deal. I wish I could go back to like little Alex and be like, listen, you're going to be okay. You are going to be in student debt, but it's going to be okay because you're going to manage. <laughs> I'm going to say, oh, thank you, future Alex. You solved all of my problems. But here's the thing. You, you have to be wrong sometimes. And I can appreciate the process of being wrong. And I think that is something that um, I try especially hard to teach my students is because you're wrong does not mean you failed. If you're wrong, you might fail sixth grade if you just continuously be wrong and not try to be right or not um, take the criticisms or take the direction that someone is giving you for an objective assignment. Mm -hmm. It's just like spelling. Like, you just spell the words one way, this is just what it is. What if we all start color, ca calling colors different names? That would suck. That would not be good. I would not do well with that. I would not do well with that either. Yeah. So I continued my dig, and I ended up in California. So not real far, you know. Seattle, California. And California has already rolled out or has a prospective training course that you can access online should you want to fact check me or look through it yourself called A Pathway to Equitable Math Instruction. It's um, a year long. It is a year long training course of five what they call strides that focus on resolving white supremacy and the patriarchy in our classrooms, particularly in the subject area of mathematics. And so I did do a cursory dive through this. I obviously did not work through the workbook like I should or whatever else. But I just wanted to have, I want you guys to realize that I'm not just offhand having an opinion. I have opinions. I have lots of them, promise. But I want you to know that we are actually adults that do research. research and objectively speaking, want to, to see what this, what this is about. There's a lot of good points here. And I, and I will be the first to say that. The program that they're working on there are some good things. There are training, having worked in the education system, I can tell you that there are some teachers I have met that could benefit from learning from a couple of the things out of this workbook, 100%. And again, I don't think this was made to, to be ugly or to like be goofy. I think this was made with really good intent, but I just don't think that it's on the right path. I don't think it's... I want to say I don't think it's necessary. Okay, and I yeah. don't want to say that, like, I don't think that equalizing access to great education isn't necessary. It is. It 100% is. But math is math. Math is math. Like, math. We didn't. Europeans didn't create math, guys. Europeans did not be like, hey, today 2 plus 2 is 4. And if you can't get on that boat, kick rocks. You know, this is thousands and thousands of years of multi-leveled pieces being put together into a mathematical system that across the globe we accept. Now, how we go about adding numbers together, how we go about solving multiplication questions. That's a common core problem that I'm not even trying to get into. So even like even if we set common core aside, if you look at the way that you and I were taught mathematics and how to multiply, that's totally different. So when we look at objectively, if math is math, right, we're talking about taking these thousands and thousands of years, putting them together into a system 
that, that works. Even if we look at how you and I taught, were taught mathematics, if we look at how we were taught to multiply, it's not the same as how students in Japan were taught to multiply. I have watched those videos. Fascinating. With the lines, have you seen them? No. They like, if you have like 54 times 32, you like make five lines this way and four lines this way, and then like you dot four times on each of the cross and then however many dots are there or something like that is the answer to the thing. It's like witchcraft. I've seen it. It's the most fascinating thing in the world. I love it 100%. If I could ever wrap my brain around how to actually make it work, I would 100% multiply that way every single time. I love it. It's got, I'm a very visual learner and it's got all kinds of like lines and colors and they color code it to teach you because I'm dumb and I need the colors to show me no, the differences. No, no, no. But it's so good. Uh, so even, so like I've said, there's, there's ways to learn from the way that other cultures teach uh, mathematics in general. But at the end of the day, it is objective, and 54 times 32 will always be the same answer. What that answer is, I don't know. But no. 54 times 32 will always be 54 times 32. It's 1,728. 1,728. Cool. And I did it again, and it's still 1,728. Still did it again. One more time? One more time. 52 times, wait, what was it, 54? 54 times 32. 1,728. Perfect. So I broke down each one of these five strides, and I did a little bit of a dig. There's not as much to dig through with stride five. That's really like the uh, coaching tool that, that administrators would be using and utilizing to help teachers work through the workbook. So I don't really have a lot of insight there. I don't feel like, as I'm not an administrator, I don't know what their coaching tools look like 100% now. So I don't want to speak as to how much they've shifted or changed that. But we're going on the book. Stride one, however, okay? And Alex hasn't really seen a lot of this, so you're going to get her genuine responses. Stride one emphasizes, has an emphasis and value placed on collectivism and de-emphasizing the value of the individual. The teacher, this is my opinion. Um, it asks teachers to instruct verbally and have students offer verbal explanations about how they would arrive at a problem instead of a written format. It does talk about having no right answers, asking teachers to focus on offering questions that could potentially have more than one answer or to take a standardized test question and challenge the answer to see if they can arrive at a different answer but justify how those answers could also be considered correct. Okay, so let me ask you this. They're going to take your state standardized test and who's going to give them that opportunity to challenge them? You're challenged in the classroom. That's how you would instruct. So you would take a sample question, like how we all get like sample probe questions or whatever, uh -huh. and you would take that mathematical example and you would say this is the right answer. And you would have the kids work it out and if they came out with an answer that wasn't by the book correct, you would say, okay, justify it. Work verbally. And here's the thing though. It was a very large emphasis on real word math and a, an emphasis on teamwork and collaboration over doing things independently. It stressed very heavily on the idea that students, it's great that they can do math on their own, but in the real world, they're not necessarily going to always have to do anything by themselves. And I agree with that to some degree. That's why we forcibly make them do group work. I hate group work. If I could never assign group work because how much I hated group work in life, I wouldn't because it was the bane of my existence. But I also understand and recognize that in life, we don't exist in a bubble. We have right. to work with people whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not. And I think it's a good lesson for kids. But they hand out what they would call er uh, error analysis worksheets to focus on the wrong answer brought about by what they're calling a right idea, which I don't disagree with. I think looking yeah. at the wrong answer, which is why we show our work, oh, so you can see where you went wrong, right? That's yes. why my dad was so big on, even when I learned how to do some math in my head, he's like, where's your work? And I'm like, I did it in my head. He goes, no. do it again. Show me on the paper. Because when you make the error, and this is how I found out I have dyscalculia, guys. I actually swap and rotate numbers in my head, and I will write them down wrong. All the numbers are on the page, 
My brain will not pick up on the fact that I have rotated two numbers or interchanged two numbers so long as all of the numbers are still the same. Yeah. So I could have followed all the steps correctly and still get the wrong answer because 72 is not 27. Right. If you multiply something by 72, it is a significantly bigger number than 27. Yes. So I will always be wrong. Even though I had the right idea, Yeah. the wrong part was that I have this calcula and, and without showing my work, I never would have found that out. Right. I would have been perpetually frustrated about the fact that I suck at math my entire life because I didn't know that. I, I really do like the wrong idea. And sometimes I'll do the wrong idea or like the wrong um, answer questions in social studies because I like, I like and kids like to tell me that I'm wrong. Kids love to tell teachers they're wrong. And so if you're willing to like tell me all day, I will just take it. I will be wrong and you can tell me why I'm wrong and I will love every single second of it. Because it shows you what you know. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I I love, I want to say I love to pick a fight in a class because I, I love when they're passionate about something and, and they are. But I will never tell them that there is no right answer unless it's like world peace or something like that. Yeah, so I actually use the phrase there is no right or wrong answer here. Pretty frequently, but generally that's a okay, discussion. Well, we teach social studies and yeah, we don't teach that's what I was going to say. Generally, that discussion is around a social aspect or an opinion-based topic. There's not a lot of opinions in math. You don't get to, to just throw out, out there, which is, I think, why a lot of people in STEM, a lot of people who are in mathematics, um, sidebar story, the guy I dated in high school was like Sheldon Cooper. That man loved concrete absolutes. He loved hard sciences where you could discover an answer if something was right or wrong, it worked, it didn't work, that was it. Mathematics was great. He, was, he actually tutored me in college and it was awful because we had broken up by that point. It was not a good breakup. And then I had to beg him to teach me how to do statistics and math. So it was a really humbling experience for me. But he poo-pooed and bleh, on soft sciences because they operated in the abstract, that we had no right or wrong answer. We had all of these big ideas that we're just hypothesizing about and it just is what it is. And so I feel like the people who really excel in STEM and who really excel in mathematics in particular are people that operate in the black and white areas. Yeah. They don't like gray. It is or it is not. That is it. Absolutely. So it continues to go on in this section. And I'll read you the, the overview of the, of the topic of the entire section in a second. But some other highlights were that raising hands in a classroom leads to power hoarding. Calling on students can reinforce notions of perfectionism because you would single out the kids that you knew had the right answer. Pairing up students who are excelling in a subject with those who are not reinforces paternalism. Yes, so those are three things that they teach against. No hand raising in classes. Do not call on students, instead allow them to call out an answer on their own accord, allowing for equal access to anyone to answer. Are these people promoting chaos because Chaos. That's what it sounds like. And then pairing up students who are excelling in with the kids that aren't teaches that the kid that is good at it is going to teach down to the kid that does not. Well, let me just stop you right there. I actually very much agree with the last one, and it's not because of that. It's because I am the biggest advocate for the gifted student for the advanced student, um, and I would 100% rather do 20 million times percent more work on my part to help that kid move on to a different level and to find a different way to um, remediate for the other kid than trying to put them together. Yep. So I actually agree with that too. I also don't pair up kids that are strong readers with kids that are weak readers or kids that know the topic well with kids that don't. I actually generally tend to pair people with equal status together. And that sounds bad because generally, according to this, you would expect that it would be people of color and kids of color that, that are at the bottom end of the spectrum. And that's not always true in our facility. Um, and we do, for the record, again, teach at a Title I school where a majority of our students are students of color from low-income areas 
But I find that when you can relate to the person that you're working with, whether or not you agree with them completely, when you can relate, yes. more productive conversation and discussion and collaboration comes from those moments than when you have a kid that's like a super genius on the spectrum versus a kid that has a first grade reading level Absolutely. and has no idea what's going on. Absolutely. And I think um, it is so unfair to both of those students because not only are you putting them in a tough academic situation, you're putting them in such a hard social situation. And then if you have to continue with this group for however long, like a whole year, there's there might not be a whole lot of animosity or a lot of negative feelings, but there is such a knowing feeling. Like, I know that you have no idea what you're doing, or I know that you are a strong reader. I know, and that is um, not something I want to sub subject anyone to. I'd much rather everyone feel like that they are on the right level, you know? Yeah. And honestly, I will say this. I've had, and again, we know that mathematics and, and social sciences are very different. I've had uh, you know, opportunities where I've asked kids to hypothesize about something or to solve a problem, and they, the kids that are on the lower end of the spectrum or of the grasping the concept actually do better than our advanced or gifted kids. On our most recent um, quarter test, the highest score of the entire seventh grade came from a girl with a IEP for special learning disabilities. She's got lots of accommodations, lots of stuff that she doesn't generally use, but she outscored the gifted kids by five to 10 points. Wow. She killed it. So, She's not somebody you would have traditionally, according to the idea of an excelling student to those who are not, because she has not been excelling all quarter. Yeah. She put in work over spring break and over the, over the, the weekend and knocked it out of the park. She killed it. it. So, you know, it just goes to show that, like, I agree. I don't know about the whole and reinforces paternalism thing, but, like, I don't love the idea of the low lows and the high highs being paired together because I don't think it's a functional relationship. And it's too ideal. We don't live in an ideal world enough to think that everyone's mid-range. Yes, That's and not, not everyone is mid-range. Not everyone is mid-range. Um, and so the rest of stride one is this, this idea that there's five sections that fall into this, and it's engaging and supporting all students in learning. Love it. Okay. Creating and maintaining effective environments for student learning. Yeah. Understanding and organizing subject matter for student learning. Okay. Planning instruction and designing learning experiences for all students. Yeah. And then assessing students for learning. I agree with all five yeah. of those things. Those are key ideas whenever you're planning a lesson, whether you're thinking this out, whether you're instruction. It's great. However, the way that we put these into perspective. So under the first one in engaging says the focus is on getting things that we have to fix. Focusing on getting the right answer. Independent practice is valued over teamwork or collaboration. Real world math is valued over math in the real world. Students are tracked into courses and pathways within the classroom. And then participation structures reinforce dominant ways of being. So those are the five things that they need to fix. Dominant ways of being? That's when we talk about hand raising, the pairing off, and the calling on. Listen, whoever wrote this, show me, you come to my classroom and you show me what we're going to do without hand raising because my dog. It would just be like... The, I have no words. It would be the most insane experience and I would have to hide under the desk. I have my class so well trained. <laughs> so on the flip side, Alex and I have never actually been in each other's classrooms for an extended time, a period of time while we teach. She is significantly more structured than I am and I am a little bit more of a wild child. I don't do hand raising during my lessons. I'm not a big fan. Part of that is because I tend to operate in my own little world when I'm in a lecture or I'm explaining a topic. ADD does that to me. My brain has to, I have to keep focus on a, on a train of thought, otherwise I lose it. I miss the train, as it were. 
but I also am hard of hearing. So if you gently or politely try to catch my attention, I may or may not hear you. So when I ask a question, my kids know, answer. Like they out loud will answer. And if there's too many answers at once, I'll be like, all right, all right, y'all like mellow, somebody answer for me. I don't care who you guys decide, but like give me one answer at a time. And they'll actually collectively look at each other and then it's like a four-way stop. Somebody just decides to go yeah. and they answer. And it actually works really well for my classroom. It has, I really tried the, the hand raising, like enforcing that rule and it just, it never really worked for me. I love that you are able to do that, but I am the strictest teacher that I know. I just, my problem is, is that much like when you guys you hear, I'm an impulsive person. Yeah. I have impulse control issues. And I know that a lot of our ADHD and ADE kids also have that issue. So it's not that you want to be disrespectful and you don't want to raise your hand. Yeah. It's that your mouth just shoots off and there's nothing you can do about it. And I've always been that way. So I recognized that in my students and I was like, well, here's your sign. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay in my classroom. You know, and a lot of times if they know they've been over, I have a couple, I have one class with two girls that live at like 80,000 decibels whenever they answer things and they're so competitive with each other. I mean like desk slamming and, yeah. and urging as they're talking. Um, they will fight to answer first. And it does cause a little bit, of, I have to actually like tell them they're not allowed to answer anymore. Yeah. When I feel like they're being excessive and not giving other people opportunities to, to participate and answer. The second section comes to creating and maintaining the effective environments. They say that teachers enculturated in the United States teach mathematics in a way that they learned it which is not true now because in Florida we have Common Core. And if you don't know what that is, y'all, try to learn it. It's hard. Expectations are not met. Addressing mistakes is done differently. And teachers are teachers and students are learners. And that's a thing that they think is a positive. They think that teachers should be teachers. They don't think that kids should step into the role of, of instruction. Whoa, like, but no, 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 no. They just said that last time. They said that they should not. That higher learners should not be working with smaller. They shouldn't operate as a secondary teacher or a tutor. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. I misunderstood. Sorry. Yeah. I did not... They agreed with us on that, that we you should not put the low lows with the high highs, expecting the high highs to tutor the lows. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. I had a very large project due this week when the research was happening, and so uh, if you would like to talk about dissertation writing, I would love to talk about it with you, but this is not about dissertation writing. <laughs> the third one is understanding and organizing subject matter for student learning. Math is taught in a linear fashion and skills are taught sequentially without consideration for prerequisite knowledge. Basically that you assume that since they're in seventh grade math that they already have mastered all of the skills required to be successful in seventh grade math. I don't think anyone assumes that. So I will be honest, and here's my fault, I actually did assume when I first started teaching, particularly when I first started teaching history, I did assume that kids came to my classroom with a base level knowledge of what exists in the, in the world in the United States. Yeah. And then I got a hard brick to the face when I had a student tell me that the Holocaust wasn't real and Pearl Harbor isn't a thing and that none of this exists and that it's, they'd never heard of this before in their life and Anne Frank's not a person and, and like I, just the amount of stuff, the knowledge that it isn't there. And so I definitely took that for granted. I was not aware. So I can't imagine what that looks like in mathematics, but I can tell you what it looked like in my classroom when I first realized, like my first year or two into, into teaching going, oh, you don't know what I'm talking about. You don't know. So I learned to reframe things when I make a reference outside of what the material is sitting out in front of me. I'm like, okay, so I talked about ambassadors yesterday. Yeah. As part of the cabinets and everything else. And I was like, do you guys know what a hype man is? And they kind of tipped their head at me. I'm like, like a hype man. They're like, you mean like the people that come out before rappers? I'm like, yes. yes. I was like, ambassadors are United States hype men. That's right. I love that. Um, so I've had to start making those reference points because while they should have talked about ambassadors at some point prior to this moment, 
I can't make that assumption anymore. Like I know that they probably haven't. So I've had to find colloquial ways of introducing it. Yeah, of, of, of giving some sort of reference point of how this should function. Yeah. They say that there's superficial curriculum changes that are offered to address culturally relevant pedagogy in practice instead of actually deep, deep root changing. State standards guide learning in the classroom and that there's procedural fluency is preferred over conceptual knowledge. I, the procedural fluency, I can get down with. What goes first? The learner. Mm-hmm. But also, you also have to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Planning and instruction. Next one says, good math teaching is considered an anecdote or an antidote for mathematical inequality for black, Latinx, and multilingual students. That rigor is expressed only in difficulty, and it's the I do, we do, you do is the format of every class. And there's a, there's um, false assumptions attached to the I do, you do, we do. It wants you to do that or does not? Does not. Okay. And then assessing student learnings, it's negatives. Our students are required to, quote, show their work. Grading practices are focused solely on lack of knowledge, and that language acquisition is equated with mathematical proficiency only. Okay, whoever said the grading, we reread that. Grading practices are focused on lack of knowledge. Yeah. I, oh, that's literally just, is the glass half full or half empty? Here's the thing, you guys. The glass is refillable, so just try again. Yep. It's fine. Just mm-hmm. try again. No one is saying this is the end of the world. You are not going to die if you get this wrong. Just fix it. Take risks. So that was stride one. Stride two asks teachers, and this is my opinion again, and I apologize, asks teachers to become what I call clairvoyant that they be able to predict what students may answer in a problem before it is assigned. And then it does have links and stuff to a a chapter, a PDF chapter, and then to um, an equitable communication blog, journal article type deal. Um, But it focuses on what do they call the understanding the five practices for orchestrating productive mathematic discussions. Um, And this does come from Margaret Schwinn Smith and Mary Kay Stein, and they are the foundational reference point for this tool that they had in here, okay? And they want to highlight the sequencing of student thinking, and it's to anticipate what our students are going to have as far as emerging ideas and alternative solutions to mathematical tasks. So if we assign two plus two is four, we need to be able to predict what other answers we may get while teaching that. Let me just tell you, in this whole time I've been teaching, I cannot make up most of the stuff that these kids tell me. No. The wild ideas that children come up with, I'll never be able to come up with. Nope. Nope. So if, if I was able to anticipate all of my children's answers, I would be a bazillionaire. Honestly, adults lack the imagination. And I and I, and I don't mean that to be rude, but we no. genuinely do. We are so limited to by what we've experienced and what we know to be true or correct that we don't have the ability to imagine something different. Like yes. I can't even tell you what other answer you could come up with for two plus two is four because it's four. So we've been doing wrong answers only for governors this week. And it has been so much fun because the first one was how to prepare for a standardized test, wrong answers only. And I let them go through the whole thing. And then I said, well, I am going to go back in time. I'm going to travel to the Arctic in 1919, I'm going to kidnap a penguin, I'm going to freeze him until the current day, and then I'm going to train him to act just like me, and then on test day, he's going to come in here and teach you instead of me, um, and that is how I'm preparing for the standardized test. And they were like, well, what did you just say? And then we spent like 30 more minutes talking about bad ideas only, how to prepare, and then we spent the rest of the time, this was like an exploratory time, um, and then we spent the rest of the time talking about how we can prepare. and. I love a creative idea. Mm-hmm. However, these are not the answers. The answers to the question are, you go to bed early, you 
eat breakfast. You study. You, you study as much as you can. Mm-hmm. You show up to school. You take it and you do your best. Yes, and that's all you can do. Yep. So the second one is monitor students' actual responses to the task. So somehow we'd have to record those. Um, then select student... How many res- teachers do they want in the classroom? Just one. Okay. Um, select student responses to feature during the open discussion afterwards. Sequence those student responses in a purposeful order to build coherent math stories. So students that are one step away from, two steps away from, three steps away from, four steps away from, five steps away from. So who so, is the closest, who is the farthest, start with the farthest, move forward, and explain how we get from the farthest idea of wrong to the closest idea of wrong. I That kind of reminds me of zone of proximal development. Like how much can you do with a little bit of support and doing a little less and a little I don't hate that. But also, how many other kids are you just losing because this is so long and stressful? Well, my problem is, is that what does it feel like to be that kid? student five who is the farthest or the most wrong and to be called out in class? Regardless of, of cultural context or who you are, what you look like, to be Ted in the back who said two plus two is 14 because he put down, you know. He imagined a one so. Or no, let's do this. He two plus two is a hundred is one thousand one hundred and eleven. That's what he came down with, because he put down four popsicle sticks and four popsicle sticks when in two groups of two looks like one 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 to him, and that's what he put down. Yeah. If that's his logistical thinking, that's fine. That's a that's a logical that's a right idea. You visually laid it out for yeah. yourself, but you came to the wrong answer. But what does that do to Ted calling him out in the middle of class? Or pinpointing his example because everyone in that room, I don't know if you guys know this, if you're outside of the classroom, I love you, God love you, classrooms are not big. They are not what they are pictured in movies and stuff. There's not a ton of room to, lay, to, to move around. I am in Alex's classroom now and hers is significantly smaller than mine and I can see the tops of every desk in this room from the corner that I'm sitting in. So that means that other kids can also see what visualizations you would be working on. Also, other kids have been with this child probably for the last five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, and they know what that handwriting is. My handwriting is very discernible. And, like, think about yours. People know your handwriting. Oh, they do. For sure. And then, finally, connect different students' responses together through the math discussion. So you would have them, you would pose the question, allow them to work through it, select those answers, put them in the math story, and then in front of the entire class, discuss how we got from worst student to almost their student to arrive towards the right answer. But to me, and I know that we're saying that there is no right answer, but all of these steps sound like we're just getting to the right answer. Like we're just teaching people to get to the right answer. Also, when are you supposed to find time to do all this? That's also a great question. And so understanding this practice is the major step to beginning implementation. If you're not familiar with these five practices, they recommend going into that personal development that's attached here into those tools so that you can go through um, readings one and two that are must-reads and reading three. Reading one and two are the five practices for orchestrating productive mathematics discussions, which is where I pulled from that from, and then chapter one, which is introducing the five practices applicably. When we move on to stride three, okay, we're into what they're calling social-emotional academic development, okay? They say, and this is a direct quote. Let me start this. Let me just say, I am all about socio-emotional development. Mm -hmm. I think that is so important. I think it's something that a lot of our generations have really lacked. And so now we're all adults that don't know how to handle our feelings. I 100% agree. So they say, quote, social, emotional, and academic development is the integration of social and emotional development with academic learning in a K-12 education. Research shows that when schools fully integrate social, emotional, and academic development into K-12 education, academic performance improves. 
Students are more engaged in school, and as a result, they are more likely to graduate high school and attend and graduate from college. I have not disagreed with anything. So I, I don't. I don't disagree with that. Okay, so this lays out how standards should be delivered um, and with which what priority they are supposed to be accomplished. So again, it focuses on four things, agency, belonging, discourse, and identity. As far as agency goes, they are considering the presentation of one's identity to oneself and to others, combining identity with who we are, with what we can do, which is our agency. Um, and that agency is evident in a student's self-awareness, self-management, and his or her sense of confidence and knowledge about their academic work. We need to be culturally competent, which is involving a historically grounded, strengths-focused facility with a, re a relational skills that are valued to the student's culture of origin. And cultural fluency, which refers to the capacity to effectively learn about and negotiate those cultural differences. Which I don't disagree with. Um, the school that Alex and I met in was a strength-based, only communication facility. You could not be like, why did you fail? Well for herself. Yes. Meaning you, she's aggressive. Yes. Yeah, you cannot use negative terminology with the students or with peers, teacher to teacher, within a facility about a student. So like she said, if somebody is an aggressive, loud, angry student, we would state that they advocate well for themselves and others. Because they do, right? If yeah. they're voicing their opinions, if they're yelling about how their friend is not being treated right, they are advocating, whether it's polite or not, that's what they're doing. So I'm about that. But the fact that the expectation is in any classroom, you're gonna have a lot of cultural diversity. So then you're asking that teacher to not only expose themselves, to the cultural identity of each of their students. And in our cases, we have about 150 to 200 students apiece. You want me to have deep knowledge, or at least below the surface, knowledge of each of these students' individual cultural backgrounds so that I can interpret them and place them carefully into our facilitated lesson so that each student feels heard, represented, and identified. And it's just not feasible. Yeah. I'm going to have to, especially, I mean, in math, I mean, I, I get it. Putting up posters that show women and men of different, uh, you know, love it. Yep, I'll do it. ideologies and and ethnicities and and relationships and whatever, um, sexual orientations, you name it, A B C D, whatever, on the wall, showing that they were successful in STEM arenas. I'm all for that. Yes, I love it. I'm all for putting up things in language in multiple languages. If you know you have students that speak Spanish and then you know you have students that speak, I don't know. Mandarin and you put up reference charts in both languages. I'm all for that. That's an inclusive classroom But to state that every lesson that you're going to give from here on out includes Everybody every time It's just not feasible. It's not something that's possible right in my opinion So on top of that you also need to do that eight times a day mm -hmm. Eight times a day which means that your lesson would be different for each class period because your cultural makeup for each class period would be different But also don't forget about uh, work-life balance Work-life balance, self-care. Self-care, very important. I do like that they want to students to have agency, that their ability to have self-awareness, self-management helps them be confident in the classroom, risk-taking. Yes. I support that 100%. That's not what we're saying here. We are just saying that the idea of how it should be attacked or, or utilized in the classroom is just not manageable. Right. Um, the second section is belonging. I mean, it says belonging is a sense of fitting in or feeling like you're an important member of a group. To be a member further describes the characteristics in mathematics to say that examining what it means to belong to a group or community, including how ethnicity and race impacts one's sense of oneself and beliefs. A healthy sense of ethnic racial identity is important for psychological, academic, and social well-being. They say that you have to engage in initiatives and co-create solutions that are inclusive, equitable, and mutually supportive. Again, all about having 
an inclusive classroom. Yeah. I, so I know most teachers don't allow certain types of language in their class. When you work in Title I schools, you're going to hear more profane language. It's, it's going to happen. Unfortunately, they repeat what they see. Yes. So if it is socially acceptable in the arenas at home, regardless of race, color, or um, socioeconomic background, if, if cussing is allowed at home or if profanity is allowed at home, they're going to repeat it here. I treat women as allowed at home. How you treat anybody yeah, is, so is you know, going to be present. If there's a lot of aggressive behavior, a lot of physical behavior, you're going to see that in these students because the kids, kids are sponges. They're going to absorb what they see. And coming from somebody who wasn't always flush, my parents, my mother swears like a sailor all day, every day. And my dad, his language is a little bad, but not as, not as bad because he's, you know, old school Catholic and he has better control over his life and facilities than I do. And I appreciate that. But I also knew that if I ever got caught using one of those words inside a classroom, oh, my ass is grass. Done. Like We're I was so out. so done. So I do have, I don't write referrals very often. I think I've maybe a handful in my life have I written a referral for language. Generally, I just correct it, make them aware of it, and I state, and I don't call them out for anything generally other than state language, and they usually are like, my bad, I apologize, because we talk about like just situational appropriateness, just so that they, when they move forward and go into like a career field or a business, that they understand that they can't just cuss up a storm and get fired. I want to see them be successful. My only exception is, is I do not do derogatory language of any kind. No, no, no. Anything that can be implied to be a, a racial slur, an ethnic slur, a slur about any abilities. form, abilities. Those words are off limits in my classroom 100% of the time. I will warn you once, I might warn you twice. If it continues and you perpetuate those terms in my classroom, you will be removed. Like it, that's my only zero time. I mean, obviously I don't do violence. That's obvious, that's the safety issue. But like outside of punching each other, threatening each other, like this is my only other zero tolerance. I don't do it. And I get very serious. I'm a big goofball in my classroom, but I get very serious real quick when I hear it. Yeah. And those kids get, and they know me. And the kids that have built that relationship know that I, it's, I don't care if people outside of your, in your community utilize those terms. I don't. And I don't accept them. So they won't be accepted because it's not fair to expose people who may fall into those categories to a terminology that you and your community outside of the school find acceptable or deem acceptable and target or emotionally damage kids in my room like that's not okay yeah so absolutely. and really it goes back to not even we want you to be good people in your future career we just want you to be good people good people in general i don't care if you want to become an underwater basket weeper just be a good human yeah you want to be a nasa astronaut or change the world like bill gates or you want to basket weave or be a stay-at-home mom i don't care just be a good human so discourse is the next one and i know that's probably what alex is most interested in and it says the discord includes ways of representing, thinking, talking, agreeing, and disagreeing, the ways that ideas are exchanged, and what ideas entail, and what's being shaped by the tasks in which students engage in. And they say that you should encourage students' academic talk and mathematics instruction, increase student talk time so that it is balanced with or exceeds teacher talk time with lessons, and then creating opportunities for students to understand the viewpoints of others, including both or multiple sides of an issue. Now, in mathematics, I'm not 100% sure where that falls. Like, I'm all about creating discourse in my classroom yeah. because history has a lot of controversial topics in it. Sure. I don't know how much controversy is in math. Um, I'm pretty sure there's not because there's just an answer. Right. So I think that's where this subjectivity comes in. Like, this is my right answer and this is why. Um, and this is what I think the right answer is and this is why. And, yeah. and, and kind of that area. Um, 
I am all for, um, I love an independent discovery activity. I love anything like that. And I am all for um, less teacher talk time. Mm, I would love to say my voice. As a joke and like actually how I feel about um, education. But also, I think there is a lot of things that play into that if you're going to have a successful student-led classroom, especially in a math classroom, you have to be very aware and consistent of how, I, I really do hate this phrase, like how you train your kids in the beginning. Uh-huh. Um, because there is, once you reach a certain point, there's really not a whole lot of going back. And I don't care who you are, if you're a behavior management specialist, whatever, that is what it is. If this was not our podcast and I was telling a group of teachers, I would say, a group of teachers that I did not know that I think paid by the district to say this to, I would say, oh, of course, you can always start a new thing. You can't. You can't. You can't. It's you genuinely cannot. Right then. Kids, once they, have, once they have clear expectations from you and they know what they can and cannot get away with, they are not going to accept new rules and regulations. Yeah. It, they're just not. It, they're, you're going to get pushed back the entire time. That's why consistency up front is key. Setting expectations clearly up front is key. And again, I, I agree with you. I don't like the term trained. But I think I explain it to my husband as like a, a mad world. I live in a mad world. Behavior gets off the charts or when, you know, expectations are being met on either side. We're mutually, we're, we're guaranteeing mutually assured destruction. I'm not going to be successful. You're not going to be successful. And we're all going to go down in flames. Yes. So in order to be successful across the board, we need to agree that I'm going to do this. You're going to do that across the board. We're going to do it. It's going to be awesome. So then identity comes down to putting it, obviously, held beliefs about the students develop about their identity to participate and perform effectively in mathematical contexts, their ability to use mathematics in powerful ways across the context of their lives. This looks like understanding the links between personal and sociocultural identities that are defined by cultural and or family views, ethnicity, race, socioeconomic status, gender, and other factors. Grounded oneself, affirm one's cultural heritage or heritages or communities, which can be particularly important for students of color, and reduce psychological distress and risky behaviors, protect against the negative health impacts of racial discrimination, and promote the range of positive social and emotional outcomes, including school engagement and pro-social behaviors. So basically, to me, this section read a lot about discrimination in, in mathematics, about, you know, it, it actually talks about how the stereotype is that Asian kids excel in mathematics, that they are the best at math, mm-hmm. and that statistically... Uh, African-American students tend to do the worst, and therefore we need to bring the Asian kids down a little bit, bring the black kids up a little bit, is is how it reads. Okay, so first of all, nowhere in the whole entire world will I bring a child down. Nope. That will never happen. I will not do that. And shame on anybody that wants me to do that. Shame on the school district that encourages us to spend more time on the kids that are behind than the kids that are ahead. Shame on you. Two, I, I didn't read it that way. I heard you say something and then I caught on to this. I really think this could be addressed in like a very good multicultural way of like how we solve math problems. Not necessarily how we solve them, but like how we present the material. So I know in language arts, I did a whole unit one time when I taught English about like the different cultures that my students were from. Loved it, so fun. And we did folk tales from each story. And if we could present math in that kind of way, I think that would be an excellent way to do it, as opposed to saying all answers are right. Why don't we include everyone in the narrative? We can talk about how everybody bought that so-and-so bought oranges from South Florida. So-and-so found, wants to save the rainforest, how many toucans are in the rainforest? Toucans. 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 Uh, uh, toucans. Eat, eat, tookie, tookie. 
Yes. I agree. I think, to me, a lot of this also pulled to the idea, like, that girls are inherently bad at math and science that girls and so girls don't try as hard because they internalize that statement because they take external factors harder than boys do at an earlier age so just imagine it's a girl that is the fifth student out from the person that got the problem right Mm -hmm. because that would absolutely make me cry and never come back to class Mm -hmm. and so i i I don't like i said i agree with you 100 i think multiculturalism as far as like how we do it i would almost say if we're gonna chalk caution to the wind look at students who have learned mathematics in like maybe as an intro to your course before you start like okay how do you do this problem like put a problem on the board that's that's super simple and then ask kids to work it out and ask if somebody wants to share how they got to the answer you know what i mean so that everybody can see that everyone's brain works a little bit differently and and i I think that's a good way to look at it i know that like my dad is significantly older so when i was growing up my dad was the same age as everybody's grandparents yeah like there's a big age bracket (laughs) my dad is in his 70s the way he did math, like, my dad has a slide rule and an abacus. He didn't have a calculator. <laughs> like, my dad did math on old school things, right? And he taught me how to do math on them when I was a kid. Yeah. So I still know how to use an abacus, and I still know how to use a slide rule. And we actually talked about that the other day. But I also know that my younger sister was not privy to the same information because she was not interested because that's not how they did it in the classroom. Yeah. She was also significantly better at math than I was. The next couple of strides, again, fifth one is the coaching tool. Four is focusing on our English learners, um, students that are having a primary language at home that is not English. And I don't disagree with the way that they're talking for the most part. I, I do disagree with they make a table about how you classify how long or how well a student is with their language. Um, they call them typologies. And you have a newcomer who's well-educated, a newcomer who's underschooled. This is a direct quote. And then a long-term English learner. And then it has things like time in the United States, uh, previous schooling experiences, background knowledge of a U.S. culture, background knowledge of school cultures, primary language skills, oral English skills, and then literacy skills, which I think are all important. And every state does that differently. We all look at those particular skill sets and say, okay, this student needs to be in a pullout ESOL or an ELL class so that they can develop the language skills needed sure. to be successful in a traditional classroom. And I that think can be something that's happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it does talk, the only thing it talks about is the, is the importance of avoiding English-only instruction. But the problem is, and that would be a systemic thing, when you have things like Common Core where they're all taking standard te- standardized tests, everyone takes the SAT. If you want to go to college, everybody takes it. And it's not offered in multiple languages. The SAT is offered in English. So while I agree that there is beauty and depth and cultural importance to an original language, and this is coming from somebody who speaks parts of five, I love language. I think it's beautiful. I think it's I think it's absolutely important and crucial to learn language, especially one that's not your own. And I think that's something we do fail at in the United States that we should start at an early age and everyone should have to learn at least one other language. I think we're arrogant in the fact that we do only speak one language for the most part. However, however, everyone hates us and we just keep going with it. English is the most widely spoken language in the world. And, you know, if you want to be successful in a business aspect, you're acquisition and control over the English language has to be there. You have to be prepared to compete on that level. So I think it would do a disservice to our students to constantly give them content or um, assessments in a primary language. I don't think that they should be deprived of a dictionary while they take it. Yeah. Um, or a translating, as far as like word by word translator, like a thesaurus or something along those lines. Yeah. Access to that in a classroom would be important during assessments. But without the practice, without the exposure, how do you get better? Yeah. 
how do you how do you understand content at that level? How do you understand? I think it also goes back to what are you assessing for? Are you assessing if they know math? Or are you assessing if they know English? Right, and I agree with that too. Mathematics, I wouldn't think. I mean, other than instructions, and if you're giving instructions, I feel like instructions can be given in any format of language yeah. you want. I think if you're selling them, solve the following problems and answer on your Scantron sheet, which nobody uses anymore, but whatever. That can be in Spanish or in Mandarin or in Arabic or in any other language you want. I don't think there's yeah. a problem with that because numbers are numbers. Um, I always see them now. Yeah. The idea of well-educated versus underschooled, I didn't like. I don't yeah. like that differentiation. I think that the American school system is significantly different from other school systems regardless of whether you or not you've ever attended a school. Yeah. 100%. Most, most schools outside of here will never put their students through an active shooter drill, which is a topic for another day. But it's something that that's not going to – there's going to be no cultural frame no, of reference for that. Yeah. There's no context for that. So is math racist? Uh, there's no wrong answer. There's no wrong answer. <laughs> I think it's we're going to leave it to you guys to decide. I – it's wild, guys, the the, the – curriculum that is being put out and being suggested at this point is a hot button topic in the United States right now and it is wild. So look forward to more conversations like this in the future. We love you all. We appreciate you coming and listening. Download, share, subscribe, whatever platform you're listening on. Right now we are in Google, wherever you're finding us, obviously. Duh. <laughs> Which sounded really dumb, I'm sorry. But we are also in you know, we're soon to come to iTunes. We are soon to come to Spotify. Fingers crossed, hopefully. And we're waiting on the approval on that aspect. But we are currently on Google Podcasts, Podbean, Amazon Music and Audible, I think just launched us today. iHeartRadio is coming soon. Player FM is available as well as tune in with Alexa. So find us, share us. Pandora is also coming soon. We are on Instagram at teacher voice with A-N-S, all lowercase. We are on Facebook under the same thing. Don't make me use my teacher voice. Follow us for updates. We will probably stick to a schedule of one a week. As we get closer to testing, it may end up being every other week. Please don't hate us. Other educators out there, you totally get it. There's just a lot going on during that period. <laughs> Eat your breakfast. <laughs> Eat your breakfast. Study and sleep. Eat your breakfast. And above all else, don't make us use our teacher voice.